The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday. It's our show about the changing nature of work and how that work is changing all of us. There's this approach to life in which you kind of play it safe. You attempt only the things that you know you can do well, and you'll probably succeed at them. But you have to ask yourself, what will you really have accomplished? I mean, there's a way to sort of look successful where you're playing not to lose, you know, not taking any risks that you aren't rock solid sure are going to pay off, right? So they're not really risks at all. They're just things you're going to do that you can nail that, right? And that is a way of at least partial success and, and maybe even looking successful. But real success and real achievement in almost any field or aspect of life that you can imagine cannot be failure-free. It just necessarily involves failures along the way. That's Amy Edmondson. Amy is a professor at Harvard Business School where she studies teams. And Amy is the kind of person who ends up at the top of every list of top thinkers because her work justifies it. It informs so much of how the most prestigious teams within organizations do their work today. Her work on psychological safety in particular has shaped my own thinking on how to create environments in which everyone feels empowered to contribute. Now her newest book is here. It's called Right Kind of Wrong. In it, she provides a framework for how we can think about failure, how we can embrace it in our own workplaces and actually use it to become smarter. Getting this right is key to creating a culture that supports creativity and the kind of breakthrough innovations that lead to real success. I began this conversation by asking Amy to describe a culture of innovation. It's not one thing. It's multifaceted. It's how people talk to each other. It's the fact that they have a little bit of slack time to pursue things that they're curious about or passionate about. It's the reward system that relishes and celebrates the really good tries, you know, the thoughtful experiments that didn't produce the result um, that you wanted. And ultimately, culture is such an important thing because culture is the taken-for-granted beliefs about what and who matters around here. And, and if you can create a culture that is genuinely enthusiastic about the need for experimentation as part of innovation, as part of progress, then you have a prayer of helping us fallible human beings to do the right things that we need to do to keep pushing the envelope. So this actually ties very elegantly to your work on psychological safety, right? Because a culture that truly allows people to feel safe to speak up is one in which you can begin to also push on failure. Absolutely. People have been asking me, what's a healthy failure culture and what does that look like? And I could just say, well, that's just psychological safety, but I always want to say more <laughs> and I want to explain more, but it is no coincidence that I've been studying psychological safety for 30 years and I'm now building on that to say, guess what? One of the most important sort of risky, interpersonally risky things we need to do is to experiment and to 
tolerate failure and to share those failures so other people don't have to have the same ones and all the rest. Right. Um, And at the heart of that is this idea that everybody should feel confident to be able to speak their mind. Not that there won't be consequences for speaking their mind, but that their voice has a place. Yeah, I, I define psychological safety as a belief that you can take the interpersonal risks of speaking up. And that risk might be, I need help, right? I'm in over my head, or I made a mistake, or I think you're about to make a mistake, or I disagree with that point of view, right? These are all inherently interpersonally risky, but in a psychologically safe environment, you believe you can do it. I'm not saying it's easy. I don't think it's ever easy, but you understand that that's what we do around here. Let's uh, talk a second about how we own up to our own mistakes in organizations and how we encourage others to do it. Because I'm just going to tell you, I'm pretty senior around here. I've been alive a long time and I've gone to work a lot of days. And I have so much fear around the idea of owning something that I may have done wrong that caused a problem for an organization. So do I, right? Let's <laughs> let's have, you know, full disclosure, um, the, take that risk. Yes, absolutely. I I hate my fallibility. I hate to talk about my fallibility. I hate to admit mistakes. I hate to report on my failures. Um, in a way, that's why I understand what a big deal this is, right? why this is so challenging. But I also know, and of course, in some industries or organizations more than others, that natural human reaction can be anywhere from devastating uh, to just wasteful. I can't tell you how many failures I've studied that could have been prevented had people spoken up with their concerns or observations in a timely way. I think about how in organizations that I've worked in in the past, there are things that everybody knows but nobody will say, whether it's that one colleague who never does their job so everyone's always picking it up or that idea that the editor-in-chief of the magazine has that's ludicrous that no one's going to like but I don't want to be the one to tell them. And I think a lot about how we can begin to shift an environment so that, sure, so you feel brave enough to speak up, but even more important, Amy, so that you empower people to tell you the truth when there's something you need to know or that your peers can feel the same to do it. In a way, it's about conveying the time frame problem right? because none of us want in that moment to be told our idea is bad or our plan isn't going to work because that's painful, embarrassing, whatever, right? We just, there's no way I think we'll ever love those kinds of moments. But I think we can train ourselves to care more about the future than we spontaneously do. And so if you tell me this now, what a gift, because you've spared us, me and us, a much bigger consequential outcome later. And so if I can just train myself to, to think as much about the later as the instant discomfort, then like the instant discomfort's fine. It's much like you know weightlifting or you know any other sport where you're you're going to have I don't want to say no pain, no gain, but that's the basic idea, right? That it it can be uncomfortable, it can be hard, it can be effortful, it can be embarrassing, but it's worth it because of the rewards we get later. You talk early in the book about negativity bias and the way in which negativity bias can actually stop us from learning from our failures because we we take in more bad information more easily. And then we have a lot of trouble letting go of it. 
How does that hurt us? Well, so we're, we're very attentive to signals of bad. Um, and yet they're painful, they're awkward, they're uncomfortable. So we sort of push them away and don't pause to look at them carefully. Right? So we don't want to endure the bit which we have to endure, which frankly isn't all that bad, but we instinctively feel it will be bad to take a cool, hard look at where we messed up. The idea that bad is stronger than good is a very old finding in in psychology. It's like our brains are just more tuned into registering the signals of harm or bad, um, that an equivalent punishment will be felt more acutely than that sort of same size reward. Yeah. And that's a, a kind of an asymmetry that we're we're saddled with. And again, it's one of those things that we can overcome when we think about it kind of carefully and intellectually. We realize we've got to overcome that to get where, where we want to go, truly. It is. It is. It's at the heart of progress. We're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, Amy's going to share a story about what happened when a company just moved too fast. Stick around. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Medtronic. Medtronic is dedicated to the pursuit of life-transforming healthcare technology. From artificial intelligence to robotics and beyond, health tech is reinventing what's possible. Every year, Medtronic improves the lives of 74 million people, and we're just getting started. Visit Medtronic.com to learn more. And we're back. As someone who has reported on tech since, well, since Mark Zuckerberg was in college, I've come up in Silicon Valley. The physical place, but more than that, the ethos of it. Speed has always been a priority here. We run at things as fast as we can, and there are great things about that. But Amy has a story of why we might want to slow our roll if we hope to fail intelligently. That story has mythic status in the business world. You may be familiar with it already. Does anyone remember Crystal Pepsi? Think back, if you can, to 1992. So often, I think what we believe to be speed could be thought of as the illusion of speed because, you know, we're going fast in the wrong direction, as the old saying goes. So the story of Crystal Pepsi was um, an effort to quickly jump on the bandwagon of an apparent interest in the market for clear sparkling sodas. Of course, there were always clear sparkling sodas that led them to rush a product to market, a kind of clear cola, and ignore the science that was saying the clear bottle and the clear liquid really couldn't last uh, for long on the shelf, and it would quite quickly uh, go bad and taste bad. But the, the desire to get out there, as marketing people often have, get out there quickly ahead of the competition or with the competition, led the team to absolutely ignore the signals that this was a failure waiting to happen and ultimately created one of the most visible, expensive business failures in history. Fortunately, not a life and death kind of failure, but but a totally avoidable, basic, preventable failure. 
so much happened in the early 1990s. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's true. There was a lot happening. I mean, there was, it was just the dawn, the early 1990s, the dawn of the internet era. We didn't really realize it at the time, but it was coming at us. And it, it like across across every vertical, complexity was introduced in a new way. We went from having three flavors of a drink to having 20. We went from having five stations on our TV to having, I mean, cable had made it already, but like the complexity that was introduced in the 90s was next level. And then the internet just exploded all of that. And here we are today, very exhausted. <laughs> um, let's talk about complex failures. <laughs> Great. Let's. Often failures have more than one cause, right? Right. I mean, so complex failures are the perfect storms. They are the failures caused by a set of different factors interacting in just the wrong way. And so unlike basic failures, where it's sort of a single human error or a single problem led to a failure, these are the, the kind that needed all of these different things to line up to produce the bad outcome which is not an atypical phenomenon nowadays, right? A supply chain breakdown under the global pandemic would be a perfect example. Labor shortages, that would be okay. Labor shortages plus weather plus parts shortages, et cetera, pretty soon you've got everything lining up and boom, it's not happening anymore. So complex failures are, are, are on the one hand very challenging because, wait a minute, to really understand them, I've got to dig into all these different facets. Yes, and they also are empowering in a way because most of the time you could remove any one of the several factors and prevent the failure. It, all it took was right. just that one handhold and you'd have, a, you'd have a better outcome. So they give us lots of opportunities for prevention. Well, you know, you open your chapter on the perfect storm, as it were, mm. with the story of Britain's largest oil spill. Right. And what stuck with me there is that it was kind of blamed on one guy, right? Captain Ruggiati. But truly, that spill was caused by so many little things. And I, as I think about, like, what we do with failure in business, we often rush to assign the blame, right? Like, what head needs to roll? And then kind of move on before we've done the work of actually figuring out what happened. That's right. And it is so profoundly human and so problematic. You know, it's cognitively and socially reinforced, but we rush to blame so we can feel like we got somewhere. We feel more safe. We feel more secure once we know. Mm -hmm. And especially when we can point the finger at someone else, right? Not at ourselves. And we like single causes, right? They're easier to understand. We feel good about them because then we can say, ah, well, as long as we don't have that guy in charge anymore, we'll be fine. Right. Which of course is completely wrong because more often than not, it is multi-causal. And worse, that tendency to blame, everybody sees it, everybody understands it. And of course, everybody doesn't want to be the target of blame. So it makes it even harder to to speak up or to get involved in in any way. So it's it's sort of a vicious cycle that that tendency makes it even harder for us to learn to do the right thing and to improve. I think a little bit about cancel culture right now and the way that I think that the internet has amplified the speed at which we place blame and the way in which we lay it and made it perhaps even more difficult to take risks and invite failure. 
I'm curious what you think of that. I think you're absolutely right. You know, I allude to it a little bit. I don't go very far with it, but the the sort of ubiquitous social media that has made things even more fraught and maybe made the made reputation even more fragile than it was before. And cancel culture is a sort of a specific feature of this where you do believe and it sometimes feels true or is true that if you have one misstep, it will follow you around for the rest of your life. You will be canceled, right? Which could not be more problematic in a world that needs to keep learning, that needs to keep problem solving and innovating to solve our many very pernicious problems. (laughs) If I had a magic wand, which I of course don't, um, that would be one of the things I would try to take out right away. Like we should not have cancel culture. We should have compassion culture. We should have there but for the grace of God go I culture. Any one of us can and will make mistakes, some more visible than others. And we have to be able to forgive each other and forgive ourselves. So what do we know now about the comeback, about how we ourselves repair in return and how we help our peers and the people who work for us and with us? Well, that's a great question. I mean, I think one thing we know is the um, that the role of a genuine apology is really, really important. Um, and a good apology repairs relationships that get either either broken or just a little bit harmed by our by our transgressions, our mistakes, our failures. And you know, a good apology is one that acknowledges the other, the harm. Um, it takes accountability for having um, contributed to that that harm and and in a sense promises to do better or at least promises to try to do to do better and as i write in the book a good apology and i'm quoting from researchers in this domain is one that puts the relationship ahead of ego so easy to say so hard to do right <laughs> our egos can feel like life itself and you know i think wisdom is about outgrowing that Amy, my wife and I are trying to teach our four-year-old to apologize right now. It's, <laughs> and we spend so much time saying, no, no, don't say I'm sorry. Go and check on them first. Go and check and say, what can I do to make it better? Which is a great it's not sinking in. question, right? Because in a way, that means a good apology starts with curiosity. Yeah. Another one of our weak spots as humans. <laughs> we have to keep reinvigorating our curiosity, but it means there's a little bit of a gift in it for you too, right? It's not just pain. If a good apology is an encounter that allows you to actually learn something new. I love thinking about it like that. That's kind of cool. Um, and I love that the idea that curiosity is at the heart of a successful apology because it just feels to me like curiosity is in general at the heart of successful humaning kind of period. Is curiosity something that we are born with, or is it something that we can foster? I think we are absolutely born with curiosity. But either it fades or it gets drilled out of us or something, because yeah. adults, especially successful ones, often <laughs> you know, don't have enough curiosity to, to really operate in their own best interest and that of their colleagues. Yeah. Well, this idea brings us back to what a successful failure culture can be, right? Because if we're operating, all of us, with curiosity at the forefront, we're less connected to 
what does this failure mean for me personally and more connected to what does this failure have to teach us? Absolutely. I think it's that ever necessary shift from me to we, right? When you can make that shift, it also softens the blow, right? If I just can keep saying, no, it's not about me, it's about us. It's about what we can do together. And since us is part of me, right? I identify with my team or my organization to a certain extent, and I want it to be successful also. That reconnection, you know, with the collective can help me do the hard things about owning up to my failures or speaking up about my concerns or asking for help or all of those sort of slight ego threats for me, if they're deeply in service of us, become more palatable. Mm-hmm. You know, there's also a diversity and inclusion aspect to this that I'm quite curious about, which is the stakes are different for us in in workplaces, especially Um when we consider failure based on our gender, our race, our sexuality, how can healthy cultures help to level the playing field a bit (laughs) and help everyone to have a voice? You know, that's a really big question, a really good question. Everyone does not have an equal license to fail in, in most of today's organizations and in today's culture more broadly. So once we name the problem, then, um, changing it. I think that's a team sport, right? I don't think that's going to be a top-down or single solution answer. We're going to have to own it, look around, talk to each other, brainstorm a bit, try some things. But it starts with acknowledging that the playing field isn't level. And I think one of the things in our modern life is we're more impatient. And maybe that's good because we can push harder, Uh, But maybe it's bad because we can give up too quickly and too easily. I mean, think of how long it took for women to get the vote in this country. It was a long time. I'm not advocating that that was good, but I am noting that it got done. And now we can't even conceive of a world where that wouldn't be our right as women. So toward the end of the book, you talk about queer theory as an example of embracing failure. I really loved that part. I wonder if you might talk a little bit about that. Yes. Well, you know, I had to do some some research, you know, and learning about this, which was really great because, again, curiosity, you want to learn. Um, but one of the things that I learned in reading, for example, Jack Halberson's um, seminal book, which is called The Queer Art of Failure, that sort of failure is is lurking in the background and sometimes the foreground in, in queer theory in general because in a sense, what's getting celebrated is the discrepancy between the identity and norms compared to the sort of societal norms of success and the what's called a mindless conformity to these norms that, that most of us felt growing up that this is what good looks like, this is how people behave and so forth. So without embracing failure, which is that sort of the deviation from the norm or the societal definition of what good looks like, you don't have any room to express yourself as as part of the, the queer community. I really loved that. And I think so much about how in the queer community, which I know intimately, there's this idea, this notion of coming out as simply questioning the rules that you were born into. And in order to do that, you fail a lot in these little ways on your way to the final expression of of who you feel most authentically to be. 
And this idea of, of failing a lot in little ways that are celebrated as you go just feels to me like maybe that's what you're advocating just in every domain of our lives and by extension, therefore, our work. Yes, yes. In so many realms, you learn more uh, as a researcher from going to an extreme case mm-hmm. that then you sort of dial it back and go, oh, this applies to everybody. Because in a way, we're all sort of authentically unique in some way, shape, or form. And we've all found ourselves in our early and maybe all of our lives conforming to things that maybe don't feel quite right or don't feel quite authentic. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, Well, we've covered a lot of territory. Um, I'm really glad to have you in our studio. I hope we'll get the chance to do this again. Um, Is there anything that we would be remiss not to talk about while we're together? I think it's been implied in our conversation already, but I would love to emphasize that we are each and every one of us fallible, that that's just a given. So get over it, right? Come to terms with it. Let's, Let's celebrate the fact of our fallibility. I mean, it's part of our birthright to be fallible so that we can learn and grow and just keep striving to be better humans um, with and for each other. That was Amy Edmondson. And I take so much from this week's conversation. We learned about what a healthy attitude about failure can actually look like and how it really contributes to what I would call an innovative culture. We covered psychological safety and how it underpins healthy ideas around failing. And Amy highlighted the importance of curiosity as a tool for using our failure to make smarter decisions in the future. You can check out her new book, Right Kind of Wrong, which is out now wherever books are sold. This week on Office Hours, let's do the thing that Amy encourages us to do. Let's talk about what we can learn from our own failures. Our team often refers to Office Hours as the kindest corner of the internet. Let's bring that spirit to this community conversation. Join us on the LinkedIn news page at 3 p.m. Eastern this Wednesday. Bring a story of your own failure and what you learned from it. You can find the link to Office Hours in our show notes or in my newsletter. And you can always just email us for the link if you can't find it. It's hellomonday at linkedin.com. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn News. Sarah Storm produces our show with help from Lolia Briggs. It's engineered and mixed by Asaf Gadron. Our theme music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Michaela Greer is very gentle with us even when we fail, mostly at Airtable. Enrique Montavo is our executive producer. Dave Pond is back from parental leave. Congratulations. And head of news production. Courtney Coop is head of original programming. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. I'll be back next Monday. Thanks for listening. <laughs>